Welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Nick Jones, who is a friend of mine. He's recently exited his business. He's been in international channel sales for years. And what I'd like is for him to tell us his story of how he's grown his business to exit through selling via partners. Nick, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Nick, can you give us a quick introduction to your background and the journey you've gone through? Sure. So I'm Nick. I am a channel sales expert, uh, particularly international channel sales. I cut my teeth starting 15 or 16 years ago, and I spent around six years as an international sales manager for a British engineering firm. It was a great education. I learned all of the mistakes. I went through all of the fuck-ups, and uh, I suffered the ineptitude of technology and engineering firm management for far too long. <laughs> and when I reached a point where I thought that I could take his job and do it better, I left the company and went out on my own. Over a period of time, the, the backroom business that was a, a bit of a laugh and a joke at the beginning turned into multiple companies spread across multiple countries. Towards the end, we were working in over 100 countries with channel partners. I've lost count how many channel partners and in um, service, in product, in manufacturing, in technology, in all sorts of sectors. Excellent. So what I'd like to do is start out with some of the mistakes that you've seen made along the way. So can we start out with partner recruitment mistakes? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think partner recruitment, as you know, Mark, is one of the most important things to, to get right. If you, if you hire the wrong partners, you, you're screwed. Yeah. And I've seen so many. I think the biggest recruitment uh, foobars I've seen are when the egotistical maniacs at the tops of companies in, in the UK recruit the people that look sexy. And I've seen it far too often. And the people that look sexy tend to be the charismatic egomaniacs who collect catalogues and want to appear like they're the top dogs in, in whichever territory, country, market they're, they're working in. A few great examples. I, I remember in the Middle East, I was working with a channel partner who wasn't cutting it and we were looking to replace them. And I presented a, a couple of options to my, at the time, my boss. And he, he didn't like either of them. He went with this guy who was fluttering his eyelids. His wife was fluttering his eyelids, her eyelids as well. And I think the guy liked getting on planes and flying around the world looking sexy. And he appointed these guys and told me that, that I couldn't have my way. I completely ignored him, of course, and uh, appointed the other guys anyway. And we ran them in parallel. And I think, uh, I think I had a thousand percent on him by the end of the year. A lot of it comes back to the ego of the people who are doing the appointment. So what are the qualities that make a great partner from the vendor side we teach a rule which is if it's not working look in the mirror and i think unless you're a good partner yourself you're going to struggle to develop good partnerships so from the vendor side what makes a good partner quite a number of things i think what i've always looked for in partners is uh, people who want to make money the first question i always ask is what's in it for them why are they wanting to partner with me and why do they want to sell my products or services mm -hmm. and if they can't answer that question with any kind of sensible answer, they, they, go, they go across the list straight away. Clearly, there are lots of tick boxes when it comes to are they technically capable and are they, uh, you know, blah, 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 blah. But I think, I'm thinking in terms of you as the vendor. What are the qualities that make you a good partner? I see, sorry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> listening would be a great story. Yeah, well, um, listening is, is very useful. Okay, so what makes me a good partner? Yeah. What makes us a good partner, Marcus? Okay. Listening, for a start. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
asking the question, what's in it for them? Yeah. One of my very, my biggest mentor in international channel sales taught me very, very early on that there are two important things. Number one is what's in it for them. And if you don't understand what's in it for them, or you're not interested in what's in it for them, you'll go nowhere. And once you understand what's in it for them, you've got to make it as easy as possible for them to do business with you and as easy as possible for them to achieve that goal. Absolutely. And that underpins absolutely everything that you should be doing when you're recruiting and managing channel partners. One of the things that we see all the time is companies fall in love with their product. It's their ugly baby. And they have to show photos of it. It's total strangers. The, the want... feature and benefit fuck up fast. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So they show up and throw out, quote and hope, seven run. And as a result of that, what happens is they get a pipeline that looks like Kim Kardashian. It's rather big at the bottom <laughs> than it is, and it's constipated with non-opportunities, things that don't move forward. So how do you get your partners to get past the feature benefit wrap and focus on what actually sells it? Recruit the right ones for a start. Yeah. If you're recruiting partners who are only interested in training sessions that consist of presentations on product and service features and benefits, then they're the wrong partners. If you go and train or, or try to train and onboard channel partners by presenting them features and benefits, they're going to fall asleep in the room. You need to understand their core motivations. And I'm not just talking about the business and the, and the company. I'm talking about the individuals from the CEO to the cleaner in the room. You need to know them all. You need to understand them all, what makes them tick and why. Only when you understand that at a real deep level and you need to spend time. It takes time, right? You can't do it quickly. One of the biggest mistakes that people make is they try to appoint a partner, expect returns the next month. It doesn't work like that. It takes time and effort to have that level of understanding. Once you understand their motivations, you can help them to understand what insightful questions to ask and how to approach their customers who they've spent often years cultivating relationships with to see value in what you're offering. And it's about that depth of understanding. And, you know, I find the best ways of doing that are simply spending time with these people and doing the donkey work for them, driving the car for them, taking the notes for them so that they can answer your questions, they can talk to you so that you can ask them questions and get real meaningful answers. Give them the space to think about these. There are a couple of things that Nick's highlighted here. One is, do the salespeople ask great questions when you're going through the recruitment and the onboarding process? If salespeople just ask about the technical features, you can pretty much guarantee that they will then start regurgitating features and benefits. The next point is that when you're going out on windscreen training calls, you drive. It's really important that you drive because then they can pay their full attention to answering your questions. Because as a channel manager, your job is principally as a coach. You have to recruit the best partners and get the best out of them. The only way you're going to do that is really through coaching. So talk to me about how much time and what you did in terms of coaching. For a start, it's, uh, it was always done on a one-to-one -one basis. When I'm dealing with channel partners or when I have in the past, I never, ever get rooms of people together around tables and, and pretend to myself that it's going to be effective. That's um, training. That's training, not it's not coaching. But so many people mistake training for coaching. Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's quite important. Time-wise as much as humanly possible. I spend as much time as possible visiting countries in cars, on the road, in cafes, in houses, with people on a one-to-one -one basis. And I think I never approached it in a formal way, coaching. It was always on the job. And I think communication is one of the biggest 
assets to that. If you have constant communication with your channel partners, with the salespeople, with the, the managers, with the directors, with who, everybody in those companies, if you're talking to them all the time about every opportunity, every prospect, every customer, and you're asking insightful questions, you're automatically teaching them to ask insightful questions at the same time. This is really important as well. What I've found over the last 30 years is that channel managers will often phone their the salespeople in their partners, and it's an interruption, and yep. it's not valued. Every time you speak to your partners on an individual or a group basis, you have to add value. Absolutely. And it's so often, it's heartbreaking. The number of times you hear the channel manager phone up, and what have you got for me this month? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, I'll speak to you next month. That is not channel management. At best, that's just being an irritation. You just turn into Joe Pest. So, when you seen that kind of thing happening, and particularly amongst your competitors, how have you exploited that? It's pretty easy, really. When your competitors, and most of them are, uh, I would say probably all of them, with very few exceptions in, in all the companies that I've started, are irritating interruptions. And I made it when I was directly managing channel, and, and obviously when I was teaching teaching my channel managers to do it, we make it our purpose to be the person that they give a lift from the exhibition to the hotel to in their cars and not the guy that goes on the bus. It's about building relationships. It's about showing that you can add value to what they're doing and to help them make money. They're there to make money. They're not there because they want to, they're having a good time. They're there to make cold hard cash and not 10% or 5%. They want to make 20 or 30 or 40 or 50%. And if you can help them to do that, in every little way possible. It's not one big thing. It's all the little things that you do every single day. I Always have a reason to phone them if you want to talk to them. And sure, you've got to grill them about their forecasts and you've got to grill them about their pipelines. You, you know, it's part of the job. But don't make that the reason that you're phoning them. Well, this then brings me to the next really important question, which is what is the agreement that you had established up front with your partners in terms of access to the end user customer, pipeline management, coaching and training their people. What's that contract sound like with their management and with them so that you're allowed to speak to the customer, you're allowed to train their people as if they're your own? I think that's about establishing yourself as a partner in the first instance. Can Um, you define what a partner is? A partner is somebody who works equally with another partner to achieve a common goal in my Absolutely. The the way we define it is that partners help each other get better. Right. And you have equal business stature. Yep. It's really important. If you don't have that parity, then what tends to happen is when there's a disparity, you get this parent-child dynamic kicking off. Yeah. And that really lasts. And that's exactly what happens when you have these channel managers calling their partners yeah. and saying, what have you got for me this month? Why haven't you placed this order? The upfront contract, the first conversations that you have, and, and sometimes they'll take six months. You know, it depends where you are. In Saudi Arabia, you can spend a year courting somebody and, and making these agreements before you actually get down to business. But yeah. once you've done it properly, the, the profits um, speak for themselves. Establish yourself as an equal partner, somebody who, with the salespeople of those organizations with which you're going to partner, is going to contribute to them achieving their goals. Show them that you're there to coach, you're there to, to mentor, you're there to bring along the salespeople. You're not the superior egomaniac. You're the guy that's going to get in the car and drive and help them to help their people make money. That to me is, is what it's, it's what it boils down to. Make it easy for them to make money. What about the agreement that you have in the event that you need to escalate something because it's not working? 
very, very clear, slightly culturally sensitive sometimes. And again, that depends where you are. You need to have the relationships with the manager, with the CEO or whoever's at the top of the organization, as well as the salespeople. And those lines of communication should be set out and set very clear at the outset. When you're dealing with a salesperson, if something isn't going quite right, if they're not cutting it, if they're making mistakes and they're not understanding or you can't you can't get them to understand or perhaps they, they need to do something that's a little bit out of their authority, you need to be able to go to these their managers, their bosses and have open, frank conversations. So on that note, if the management isn't engaged and involved, do you continue with that partnership? No, I don't. Absolutely not. It's a waste of time. So critically... What's really important here is to ensure that at every stage, management is involved right from the outset. If they're not involved, then this relationship is not going to last. And it certainly won't deliver the kind of hyper growth and the results that you're looking for. It's your responsibility when you're managing a channel to understand that those business owners got into business for their reasons, not your reasons. And it's your job to help them achieve their goals, their aspirations, their objectives, their KPIs. And if you don't do that, you're not a channel manager. At best, you are just a cockroach irritation. You're just a vermin. So get out of the habit of doing that because, frankly, you deserve the treatment that you get, which is essentially every time you pick up the phone, the opening sound is, "Ah." if that happens to you, look in the mirror, ask yourself the question, what am I doing wrong? So, Nick, tell me this then. What are the qualities that make a great channel manager? When you're recruiting channel managers, what were the characteristics, the competencies that you're looking for? (laughs) This is an in-joke because, frankly, the average channel manager is someone who failed in direct sales and was put into channel sales to die, or there's some greenhorn salesperson who was put in channel to cut their teeth. Now, in IT, the average owner of an MSP is 58 years old. So a 23-year-old straight out of university, second sales job, cutting their teeth, turning up, saying, tell me about your business. How do you think they're going to respond? <laughs> well, what harm could they do, right, Marcus? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Quite a lot. Okay, so back, back to the original question. So what, what are the qualities that make for a great channel manager? You know, the first thing that I think, whenever I see somebody at interview for a channel manager role is, are they going to challenge me for my job in five years? A great channel manager is the CEO of the future. A channel manager is somebody who has to perform the function of every single person almost in your organization with none of the authority to do it. They need to manage without power, without authority. They need to understand finance. They need to be strategists. They need to be great with people. They need to understand sales and questioning. They need to be technical if you're in technical sales. So that really is at the top of the list. Are they going to challenge me in five years? And I came about that because that's where I was. Absolutely. After I started. So to make the point, channel managers, great channel managers, let me qualify that. Great channel managers are closer in profile to a general manager and channel chiefs are closer in profile to a CEO. That typically a channel manager is compared with a sales manager. A sales management job, by comparison, is a walk in the park. A channel chief is closer to a CEO than they are to a VP in sales, which also, by comparison, is an easy job. When you consider a channel manager has 90 different functions plus, at this point, what I want to do is have the Forrester six buckets picture. So that graphic will come up. So 
A channel manager carries 90 different functions plus. They have to be able to recruit, incent, motivate, co-sell, co-market. They need to strategize. They need to plan. They need to be able to nurture and coach. They need to challenge. They need to do forecasts. They need to do reporting. And this is a tough, tough job. It's not a job for whips. So tell me, what's the journey that good channel managers typically will go through to qualify to become a channel manager who's successful? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting one, Marcus. When I see my channel managers coming in, I mean, if you're starting from somebody that's completely raw, typically they'll cut their teeth for a couple of years doing uh, something internal, perhaps internal sales, being a, a sales rep. You know, they do need a basic understanding of the sales, sales world. But very quickly, they need to be given the freedoms. And typically, I think this is where, where a lot of the potentially great channel managers fail. They're not given the freedoms by their bosses to do what they need to do. So actually, you know, um, going back really to your other your previous question, another great quality is, are they going to do this job despite me? And if the answer is yes, then they need to be hired on the spot, really. So they, they need to be set free in ways with clear boundaries and a lot of coaching and a lot of guidance. I think freedom to fail is one of the most important things. In, it's in such a critical point. Ray Dalio, who is probably the wealthiest private fund manager on the planet, has a failure law and you get punished for hiding failure. You don't ever get punished for admitting it because failure is your best teacher. And your point is that not only do you need to set them free, but you also need to allow them to fail, yes. not rescue them, mm -hmm. which is helping without boundaries or permission and yep. coddling and being permissive yep. and enable them to make mistakes, but then to capture that in the coaching to learn from those mistakes and <clears throat> to constantly be developing. So a, a channel manager who is not learning something every day, effectively, as far as I'm concerned, it's starting it's, to get stale. Yeah, absolutely. And the learning part, really good point. So important. They need the freedoms to fail. They need to learn from the failure and you need to allow them to do that. But typically, the people, in my experience, who succeed are the ones who pay a lot of attention to their personal learning journey. And that looks like different things for different people. But typically, daily habits, spend time every single day learning, developing yourself as a channel manager. If you're not doing that, you'll be in 10 years, one year experience. You'll have just done it 10 times. And you need to be pushing yourself as a channel manager more than anybody else. Spend that time, half an hour, an hour, two hours a day, whatever it is, learning. Keep a diary, keep a journal, use a learning journal, do it every day. Invest in your personal development. If you're not doing that, you know, if your company's not doing it, you should be begging them to help you to do it. Pay for it yourself, for God's sake. If you're really serious about it, channel management will make you extremely wealthy. And the people who sit back and aren't prepared to put money in the pocket, well, they want a nine-to-five job and, and, you know, and that's not, not do something else. That's not channel management. Channel so management is 24 hours. What I'd really like to stress here is the best salespeople, the best channel managers, the best managers invest in themselves. They mm. ask for help. They're mm. not afraid to ask for help. Their ego doesn't prevent them. Um, thinking of a particularly current issue where a certain political figure is insisting using a Sharpie that he didn't get it wrong. It would be so much easier if he just looked in the camera and said, you know, I made a mistake, I'm sorry, and then moved on instead of tweeting a dozen tweets. And you see this time and time again with salespeople who protect themselves because they're brittle. And the reality is that it's the, the brittle trees that snap in the storm. The flexible ones don't. 
And the same analogy applies in life in general, but also particularly in the cut and thrust of sales. You have to be flexible. You have to be ready to adapt. When Darwin was talking about survival of the fittest, he wasn't talking about survival of the brawniest, or else we'd all be T-Rexes with very small hats. And the challenge here is that you have to be vulnerable enough to admit you don't know it all. Now, what about the vulnerability of going to your partners and asking for help? Yeah, absolutely. Really critical. And that works both ways, though, doesn't it? It's not just us going to them. They need to be able to come to us. And, and that comes down to, comes back to the relationship that you're building. You know, I might be a bit simplistic about it, but if you have the kind of relationship with a channel partner where in business, in life, in, in anything, you can approach them and ask them any questions. You're invited to their kids' birthdays, to their weddings, to absolutely everything that's going on in the salespeople's, in their bosses, in everybody's lives, which is the, the utopia. And it's very, it's very achievable. You find that you can ask them anything. As a vendor, we don't know everything. As a manufacturer, we don't know everything at all. In fact, our partners are the experts in their markets with their customers. And particularly if you're talking about international channel in their countries and territories and culture and language and everything else. Actually, quite often, and particularly when you're developing strategy and developing in sales and marketing, you need to be asking the questions and say, come and help us put this together. If you don't, you're going to end up forcing your ideas on, on somebody else, on your partners. And, and it's a recipe for disaster. One of the things I've seen happen time and time again, particularly with US companies, is they come over to the UK, to Europe, and they assume that cultural approach will work. And often it doesn't. All it does is jar with the end user, it jars with the partners. So what kind of training do people need in terms of acculturation? Um, such a word. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> An awful lot. I think more than training, it's mindset. I see it a lot with the States as well, in, in the Middle East, in, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, it's very, very common that, not just the States, you know, if you look at the big engineering countries in the world, you've got Britain, you've got Germany, you've got the States, China. China, a handful of others, they tend to force their ways. They tend to be my way or the highway. And I think that's about mindset. It's not so much about training. If you're entering a new territory with an open mind, and you understand that in order to be successful, you need to get on their level. The rest of it, the culture, you know, culture isn't about how you hand over a business card. Nobody really cares about how you hand over a business card or saying hello in the local language. Nobody really cares about your business card full stop. You know, culture is about understanding when to escalate in certain situations to a salesperson's manager. Culture is about understanding why people don't give you the answers that you think you want or the correct answers. That, you know, it's, it's very, very deep. And the only way really to understand that is to live it and experience it. Back to the old thing, get in the car, drive the car, listen and learn and suck it up and soak it up and be willing to participate in their world. This brings me to another really interesting area, which is if you're managing a distributed international channel, how do you manage the engagement with your partners, given that they speak multiple languages, there are cultural nuances, different time zones, and you're dealing with people who've come through probably quite a different pathway to yours? What advice would you give to somebody who's taking on an international channel management role? The first thing is in the majority of countries, English is spoken as the business language. The idea that you have to translate everything and it's, it's archaic, it's ridiculous, you don't. There are some countries in the world where you do, but that isn't the cornerstone of a marketing strategy when you're looking at penetrating international markets. 
understanding, you know, I might sound like a stuck record. Show them that you're there to help them to do business on their level in their country. Show an interest in their past and their journey. Don't force your journey on them. Speak to them. Understand their cultural background, their heritage. Understand the company history. Understand how they've been as successful as they have so far. And show them that you want to play a part in that journey in the future. Um, rather than just swanning up and saying, this is my product, it's wonderful, and this is how we're going to do it. I think the cultural understanding is is not just about language and, and culture in a territory or of a race. It's culture of the business. It's culture of the individual people. Quite often in international markets, you'll, you'll see a sales force and you'll have five or six nationalities in the same sales team. And you'll go from one to the other in days, sometimes on the same day. And you've got to be able to adapt. You have to be flexible. You have to adapt. If you're talking to a Syrian, his motivation is going to be very different to an Indian whose motivation is going to be very different to an African. And it does all boil down to money, but why they want that money and why they need to make that money is, is very different in most cases. This is, really, again, really interesting because I think one of the qualities that I look for is vulnerability. But I would stretch that a little bit further to humility as well. People need the intellectual humility to recognize they don't know everything and that their partners can help them, that they will make mistakes and to preempt that by saying, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm probably going to put my foot in it a few times. I'm really looking for you to help me. If I'm going to do that, please stop me. And I really won't take offense. And please let me know if I have made a mistake so I never make it again because this is your territory, these are your customers, and my job is to make you look you, good. You know, I, uh, I just remembered a, an interesting <laughs> circumstance. When I first started working in the Middle East, I was under this impression, because everybody here tells you that you need to uh, translate your business cards and you need everything in Arabic and it's got to be, you know, blah, 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 blah. So uh, sure enough, I had my business cards translated. Now, my name's Nick, and not being an Arabic speaker at the time, uh, <laughs> perhaps didn't understand the implication of, of what Nick in Arabic actually meant. And Nick in Arabic, which is spelled the same, means fuck. So I walked around for a couple of years with a business card that said, fuck Jones on it, <laughs> handing them out to all of these customers, the CEOs of oil companies, uh, before, <laughs> before a Syrian, a lovely Syrian gentleman took me to one side one day and said, uh, he said, Nick, do you realize what your, what your business cards say? <laughs> but that actually, you know, it's interesting because it's interesting that nobody had told me to that point. And it was clear that perhaps I didn't have the relationships in those early days that were strong enough to get that feedback, uh, you know. I did a degree in Middle Eastern studies. So essentially I watched, I did a four year degree in watching spaghetti hoops run across a page in basically a hungover haze. Um, and at the end of our first year, I had to do the Arabic oral exam. And I prepared this piece which said that I was going to go to Egypt and I was going to go up the Nile on a boat and I was going to go and see the pyramids and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, because of the way Arabic works, you have what's called a triliteral route. The word kataba is the, uh, yeah. the verb to write. And from there, you get katib, kitab, maktub, and all of these things mean you know, things like author, written, desk, all this kind of stuff. Anyway, the verb to sail is suffer. And I, I misrepresented it. So what I did actually tell them that I was going to go up the Nile on a sailor. And I couldn't understand what my examiners were pissing themselves with So I, I absolutely get um, the, the cultural thing past. Um, luckily, I used to feed them every term. And that's how I got my degree. It was just entirely through bribery and nepotism. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, 
the number of mistakes I've made along the way. Hey, let's move on to the next subject, which is the onboarding process. When you're onboarding a partner, we teach that the first 120 days, you make them or break them. And it's crucial in that 120 days that you're at least putting money in their backs within the first 90 days or they've got a really good, solid pipeline. Otherwise, they'll go dark on you. So what's been your experience of the onboarding process and what mistakes did you make along the way that you had to learn the hard way? Well, I made the obvious mistake, and that is the, the feature and benefit fuck-up fest yeah. presentation to the, the the people around the room, and you spew all this technical brilliance fed by your engineering team and wonder why they all fall asleep. Or you take an engineer to spew all the brilliance. Typically, yeah. typically, yeah. Just get the engineer to spew yeah. the brilliance yeah. and, and um, <laughs> wonder why they all fall asleep and nothing happened. Critically, yes, 120 days is, is typically roughly what we, we used to do. We used to take them through a, a program that would cover, it would cover the technical. It is important that they understand the technical, but it's more important to understand how they can use that to sell. Absolutely. And just because a widget has uh, X, Y, and Z buttons and knobs, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares what your product is, really. You know, your channel partners don't care what your product is. They care how it's going to make the money and how they can sell it. So the, the focus really needs to be, if you are going to be training on how to use the technical brilliance to, to make a sale, to add value to a customer's experience, to a customer. There are lots of facets to the onboarding process, and I think that's one of them. Understanding the competitive landscape is exceptionally important. And a lot of people dismiss that, but actually... If you understand who your competitors are, both in terms of manufacturers globally or, or producers, service providers, whoever, the vendors, and also the local, local agents and distributors and partners, you can better assist your channel partners with forming insightful questions, the right kind of questions, and helping their customers to understand how you can bring value and, and solve their pains and their problems. I think the, the critical point to take out of this is that product knowledge used at the wrong time right. is lethal. And that's early in the sale. Yeah. The purpose of product knowledge for the salesperson is to help them develop really powerful, insightful questions yes. and help them to sell your stuff. Once they've done that, then what that allows the customer to do is realize why they want what you're offering. Mm. And they're, they're, you're helping them to solve their problems. The mistake people make is they try and solve a problem at a very high level, a business level. But actually, people buy for their reasons. In, in my world, the thing that really flabbergasted me very early on was that it never crossed my mind that people would buy my training in order to pay for school fees, to get IVF treatment, to pay for vet bills so that their horse didn't have to be turned into pedigree chain and glue. Yeah. And those are the drivers it's the difference between symptoms and real pain. Absolutely. The things that, the, 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 again, going back to the motivations of the, of the individual, that's why it's so important. It, it might be that you've got a, for example, because the Middle East was my, my specialty, it might be you've got an Indian selling for you in the Middle East, and, and their motivation is not about making money for the business or meeting target. Their motivation is that their parents are ill and they need to pay for the hospital fees or, or they want to educate their kids somewhere and it's going to cost them a lot of money to do that. That's what keeps them awake at night, yeah. um, understanding those pains. So, so yeah, you're right. You know, the, the product knowledge at the right time is really critical. And, and it, in terms of the customers as well, you know, it, it applies equally to them. And your channel partners are going to be best placed to understand what those pain, real pains are. And again, it goes back to your earlier question about, about asking them for help. You know, I don't know what most of the customers 
our end customers' pains really are. I rely on my channel partners to do that, and it's up to me to ask and help them to understand what those are. I'd like to build on the competitive analysis mm. as well. I, I was doing some work a couple of years ago with an chemical, industrial chemicals company, and we ran our competitor impact tool. And what was really apparent was that there were some glaring gaps within the strength area of the competition. And that allowed them to drive a wedge between the competitor and the customer. And that gave them a foothold, which then allowed them to expand. So then they were able to you know, widen that gap. And the competitive analysis is critical, along with that territory plan, being able to map the territory, map the accounts, Absolutely. identify the, and prioritize where they're going to invest their scarce and expensive resources. So what were the planning activities that you went through when you moved into a territory with new partners? Time is, is key. Don't rush. Take time to plan properly. Clearly, analysis of the customer landscape. I worked in, in engineering, in oil and gas, in, in various different sectors. But understanding those sectors in depth is really, really important. It might be that there are a thousand customers, potential customers in a territory, but I'm not interested in a thousand customers. I'm interested in the 10 that are going to make me the most money. So analysis of obviously the market conditions, all the kind of reports that all the, all the trade bodies throw at you, that plays a part in it. It's kind of interesting. Well, the oil and gas industry is a hundred billion this year in this territory. Well, nobody really cares about that. I only care about the money that I'm going to be able to make. So understanding on a, on a real detailed level, and again, this is where you need to talk to your channel partners, you know, what's going on in this marketplace? What are the trends? What are the, what's coming up next? Where is the industry going in this year, in three years, in five years, in 10, 20, 50 years? And uh, obviously that's on a territory level, but it's, it's important to note that that plays into the bigger picture. If you're managing or entering multiple territories internationally, 10, 20, 30, 50 territories, you need to understand the risk profile. And it may be that you can capitalize on a market for, for a year or two or three, and then it's going to disappear. So in terms of the, the business plan for your business and your whole company and uh, your international strategy for the longer term, it's really important to understand what those trends are going to be. So what, what I'm taking from that is what you say no to is more important than what you say yes absolutely. to. Absolutely, absolutely. That you slow down to speed up, that knowledge is power mm -hmm. and it makes good sense to slow right down in order to understand what's genuine where the opportunities are where the opportunities are not and what the fool's gold is absolutely so that you focus your scarce resources on the best possible opportunities you prioritize and you make sure that you're investing all of your energy on those deals that you can and will win that will have long-term sustainable relationships that will be profitable. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's really important, going back to our previous, your, your last question, you know, about, uh, we were talking about pains, customers' pains. If you're, you know, I categorize channel partners, uh, roughly speaking, into four different sort of categories. There are order takers, mm -hmm. there are catalog collectors, there are, um, and the catalog collectors tend to be the egomaniacs, and the order takers tend to be the general traders who have no strategy and no loyalty. And there are serious business people who are there to, to make, make money in, in a long-term, sustainable fashion. Uh, I can't remember what the fourth one is now. Um, well, the fourth but, one, I guess, are probably your heavy hitters. Yeah, there's the, there's the big heavy hitters. And I think those last two categories are possibly the ones where I, you know, I focused. Obviously, the first two are a complete waste of time and tends to be where the... the the vendor ego maniacs focus because it's easy. The research that I've been doing over the last three years has been really depressingly telling. What we're finding is that 
upwards of 40% of the profitable revenue is generated by no more than 2% of the partners. Mm. And when you think about the amount of money that people waste on recruiting, training, onboarding, provisioning, it's a shocking, horrific waste. But if that money, that time, that resource, that energy, that effort was focused on working with that 2% and then maybe the 4% B-plus players who have that A-player potential, then uh, I was talking to uh, a chap a couple of weeks ago and uh, he had a 1,000% growth by operating with just six partners out of 3,000. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. I remember actually when I transitioned from employment to starting my very first business, one of there were many frustrations about my, my past situation, but um, the most important thing was that we were being forced to appoint channel partners and to, to work with channel partners who were the, the catalogue collectors, who were the egomaniacs, who were the general traders, because they were very charismatic, because they brought a, you know, a, lot, of, um, a lot of sex to the business. But they weren't heavy hitters. They weren't the people who, you know, I latterly partnered with who would build a $300 million business in two years. These are the kind of guys that you want to be working with. And these are the kind of people who have the the political connections, who have the the industry connections and have have the sheer bloody minded will and determination to get the job done and to earn the money. And, you know, when we when we first started the business, I remember between year, year one and two, there are three particular channel partners in three different countries, and we grew them by many thousands of percent in a year from year one to two, just by focusing our resources, our time, our energy on them and spending the time to develop them properly and to coach them, to train them, to understand them, to really dig deep into the marketplace in, in a ways that we, we'd never done before. What percentage of your profitable revenue was generated by those three? 80, right. probably. Out of? Out of what number of channel partners? 50-odd. So, again, getting close to that 2%. Yeah, absolutely. And they and those partners today remain the ones that throw in 80% to the, well, to the business. And that's really interesting because if you help them become hyper-successful, they stay loyal. Funny, funny that, isn't it? <laughs> when they start making lots of money, they actually stay loyal to you. Well, again, this is, one of the things that uh, I've seen time and again is, and in fact, I'm going up to a conference today, and what I'm going to be really curious about is the number of people who go up to those vendors and offer to sign up as partners and will produce nothing. Mm. But The catalogue collectors. Those catalogue collectors. But what they will do is they'll get their logo on their website and they will eat up those resources and they'll tie up... Uh, engineers time and they'll get them to do duck shoot demos uh, that go nowhere and you end up with that bulge in the pipeline but people for some reason don't seem to learn what is it about management that allows them to be repeatedly so <laughs> fucking stupid i mean seriously what, what why, why, do, why do we keep repeating uh, mistakes from history without learning from them? Uh, lots of things fear of failure Ego. Which is guaranteeing failure. Which is, which is guaranteeing failure. It's, it's reinforcing failure. Yeah. Um, driven, in my experience, you know, since, since moving on from my companies, I've uh, done quite a bit of consulting in the engineering space in the UK. And the thing that I see over and over again is that people, the people get in their own way. It's about ego. And they're more interested in being right. And they're more interested in spending time on planes going to trade shows because it's sexy and meeting all their peers and looking like the big I am. Yeah. And collecting air miles so they can take their families on holiday <laughs> than actually admitting, you know what, I, I cocked up and we need to change our strategy. 
And also, I think it's fear fear of losing. So many businesses, they, they manage average or crap channel partners. Yeah. They make a little bit of money. But instead of focusing on three that do 80%, they'll focus on 50 that give them lots of little bits. And they'll, Which they'll justify it. is not focused. No, it's not focused. Um, but yeah, yeah, you're right. They're not focusing. They, they just run 50. They get lots of little amounts of business. And they justify it by saying, oh, I'm spreading my risk. And I hear that so often when actually two or three or four, maybe five of those 50 could probably grow their business by several hundred percent year on year for decades to come. But fear of losing the other business prevents them. It's fear of failure and probably fear of failure in the eyes of their peers. I interviewed Jay McBain, the chief analyst for Forrester around channels, alliances and partnerships and uh, on the Shadow Channel. Really fascinating uh, conversation. What he's really focused on over the last couple of years, his message is very clear that vendors are and partners are becoming hyper-specialized. So the example he gave is that it's no longer good enough to be the managed service provider in healthcare. You have to be the MSP for ambulatory daycare centers with 50 doctors in Southeast Chicago. And I think, again, that constraint is really, really important. Too often people spread their risk and in doing so, they maximize the probability of failure. Mm. Risking is going from lower to higher value with the possibility of losing some or all of what you've got. Yeah, what they actually fall into the trap of is sacrifice, which is by playing it safe, they guarantee their failure because they spend so much of their time on unproductive activity. The research that Sanders done over the years suggests that the average salesperson is only 25 to 35% productive in any given working day. Honestly, that is a wild exaggeration because 80% of the average salesperson's time is spent chasing people they should have closed or disqualified on the last call. 80% of the channel manager's time plus is spent chasing deals that are never going to happen, doing demos for deals that are never going to happen, working with partners who will never produce. What has to change in terms of management's thinking for this, to, for this to no longer be the case? It comes back to the management every time, doesn't it? If your salespeople and your channel managers are doing demos and filling forecasts and pipelines with, with crap, they're not being challenged. It's so important. One of the most important functions, I think, of a, of a really good manager is to be asking your channel managers and your salespeople really good questions about their pipeline, not allowing them to inflate pipelines, to inflate forecasts. I've seen so many crap forecasts, mm -hmm. and it's always, always, in my opinion, <laughs> the fault of the managers, not the salespeople. When I was in recruitment, our pipeline, our forecast would vary 60 to 80% either way. Um, so <laughs> it's normally 60 to 80% above what we thought we'd get. Um, and then we come in 60 to 80% below. Um, and, and you can't manage a business that way. There's no consistency. There's no certainty. There's no predictability, which means you can't invest, you can't recruit, and right. you're constantly stealing from Peter to pay Paul. You're saving for a rainy day. But I mean, in terms of mindset, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's up to managers and company owners and directors to not put the pressure on people to have inflated forecasts. You know, I think to a lot of the companies that I've been into in the last couple of years, and I talk to the channel manager and the salespeople, and they're filling their forecasts with crap. And to me, something that's forecastable is a 95% qualified, qualified yeah. prospect. That's what should be in your forecast. If there's anything below that, 
It shouldn't be in the forecast. Because you've either done the qualification or you haven't. Uh, And if you haven't, it's not forecastable. It's just a lead and probably a crap one if you've spent loads of time on it and it still isn't 95%, right? So, but so many salespeople and and channel managers put those leads into forecasts because they're being forced to produce forecasts to meet certain numbers. And we need as managers to give them the freedom to show us the reality. And if the reality is that the forecast is, is that you're going to be well below target, then there are other issues that need to be addressed. And it's no good covering them up with crap forecasts. Well, this then comes back to the fundamentals of sales, which is that your prospecting is your job. Whether you're in account management, channel management, direct sales, uh, inbound, whatever, you should always be prospecting. Even if you have an inbound reactive sales team, they should be prospecting through requesting referrals, asking about other aspects of their business, where those accounts can expand. Now, one of the things I see time and time again is this race to get new logos. And as a result of that, they spend an enormous amount of time, money, resource, effort, blood, sweat, tears, chasing stuff, which costs... Now, the latest research that I've seen suggests that it it costs 12 to 25 times more to win a new cold account than it does to sell to an existing account, particularly in the enterprise space. Why would you do that? It's just crazy. So tell me this, in terms of expanding the partner's accounts, how much time and energy did you spend with your partners helping them to develop account expansion plans? At the majority. Clearly up front, you are board partners and you spend a lot of time. You know, typically I see partners performing at their peak after a year to 18 months. And that's a very constructive year, lots of time spent with them, with all the people in... After that, once you've got a good handle on a market, a sector, a territory, whatever they're targeting for you, expansion is key, absolutely key. Otherwise, they'll stagnate and they'll become just like every other one of your 50 partners and they'll sit at whatever number you've hit forever. And actually, it's really important. Again, it comes back to your knowledge of a a marketplace. And I'm thinking about international channel now, so I'm thinking about territories. Your channel partners... Before, before they work with you, will have sold to a set of customers. And each one of those customers will hold plenty of potential for expansion through new product, through upsell, through service. There's lots of ways to sell more to a customer. But there are probably a whole host of customers that your channel partner isn't penetrating. And the long game is to identify which of, which of those new customers, those untouched customers, are worth spending time developing relationships with and penetrating. So I'll take um, take Saudi Arabia, for example. Actually, there's sort of an interesting story in my early days of Saudi Arabia. I was working with a catalogue collector. Uh, it, was, it was thrust upon me. And it was actually through spending time expansion planning with that catalogue collector that I learned the names and met the people who later became my partners. So it's not just about, you know, the time that you spend expansion planning and planning for the future isn't just about how can we how can we expand business with this one partner. There's so many things that you can learn and understand and find out by spending that time. So moving on to those bigger, the heavy hitters, the, the guys that I work with latterly in Saudi Arabia who I met through the catalogue collectors, they penetrated a very specific set of, of customers and they knew everybody and everything about them and they understood their pains and what kept them awake at night. And we did a lot of business. We, we grew about 5,000% in a year just by making the switch from a catalog collector to the heavy hitter. And the heavy hitter is the guy who, who, um, who built the 300 million in a couple of years. You know, these guys are serious players. So I have to ask the question, 
Because if you're growing at 5,000% a year, that creates a massive potential strain on your organization in order to keep up. So what kind of planning and what kind of exercise do you have to go through in terms of mapping and designing the positions for growth, looking at the processes, looking at the people that you've had already uh, in order to backfill those positions, identifying the performance metrics that you're going to measure in order to drive and support that growth so the wheels didn't come off. Because I imagine there was a certain amount of uncreation. We, 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 we've been through a fair amount of that, <laughs> yes. I think, I think that's twofold. When we were doing this, we were looking at, you know, we had a lot of channel partners in a lot of countries and we were selling, we were getting lots of small orders from lots of different channel partners. What we actually did, instead of necessarily increasing capacity, which of course, that's the second one, we did that as well. We actually got rid of quite a lot of the other channel partners. So instead of growing ourselves in the first instance, we freed up capacity by getting rid of the crap. Right. Which is really important because the crap wasn't profitable. The crap was the kind of orders that you take when you discount and you, you know, the traditional sales discount demo um, can have 20% yeah, sure, no problem. Let's just get the order at any cost. So we, we realigned the whole operation and we got rid of all of that. And we used that capacity to fulfill really, really profitable orders with two, three, four channel partners. So actually it didn't put that much strain on us at that point. It was at the next phase of expansion when we we suffered a little bit from the expansion uh, you know in the back end in manufacturing and service provision and in support and, and all those areas but we planned for that it was part of the business plan we understood what was happening in the territory because we spent a couple of years by then with the heavy hitters growing three four thousand percent that gave us the finances to be able to and the profitability to be able to reinvest and expand teams and you know so i think i think it's about doing it in the right order if you're looking for business and expansion at any cost and you want to retain everything every order that you've ever taken every territory every channel partner then you say it's going to fail because you're not allowing yourself to focus on profitability a profitable business this sparks a really interesting question as well presumably if you were then refocusing the resources you did have on those high value high probability wins that therefore means that you're keeping some really hot talent within your business how early in advance of take putting them into really serious positions were you developing them career pathing them coaching them exposing them to the kind of experience that they were going to need when you set them free not enough actually yeah. is, the, is, the, is the truth <laughs> because we grew so rapidly in the early years we didn't have the luxury of years in advance to plan in our own business because we were a new company so so not enough by any stretch and actually that was probably the, the source of most of our growing pains because the culture the expectation the experience hadn't we hadn't had the time to give everybody and, and set those expectations give people the experience but as early as humanly possible, you know, if you're making a five-year plan or a three-year plan, I, I don't believe in five-year plans because I think they're basically bollocks after six months. Plan but, that survives contact with the enemy. Right, absolutely. Um, if you're making a plan for the business over a, a number of years, the first job is to look at the people and how you're going to deliver that and how you're going to resource it. And if you have great talent in the business, capitalize on it, use it, nurture it, coach them, Give them career paths as early as possible. 
throwing people into situations at the last minute is, is the best way to... Congratulations, to you are one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to start wrapping up now. Tell me this then. Given the journey that you've been through, if you had a golden ticket and you could go back and advise <laughs> the idiot Nick in yeah, his mid-20s what to do differently, what, what would be the best bits of advice to do and not do? <laughs> you know... Um, I get asked that quite a lot. And actually, the truth is I'd do it exactly the same way again. That's not the answer you're looking for. But I've made so many mistakes. I've fucked up so many situations and lost so many orders. I've liquidated companies. I've, I've screwed up recruitment. And it's only by doing that that I've actually been able to really understand how to do it and therefore achieve what I've achieved so quickly. So, so in truth, I would, I would do most of it the same again. I think, I think if I had to pick something, it would be to um, spend more time on recruitment and do it better, hire the right people and focus more on getting the best out of those people rather than managing shite. There are occasions when we, you know, we manage shite for far too long and, um, you know, but, but we deserve that. Deserve the crap that followed. What you tolerate, you, you deserve. deserve. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think I think recruitment in sales and channel sales particularly is absolutely key. Get it right first time. Don't hire somebody because they're the best of a bad bunch. Just don't hire somebody. Uh, one mm. of my clients has a lovely phrase: "Is he better than an empty chair?" Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely. <laughs> but the you know the cost of doing that is enormous when you when you break it down. And I know you're a numbers man, so you yeah. do that a lot. But yeah. it's enormous. Better to have an empty chair. I like that. Yeah. Better no breath than bad breath. Yeah. So recruitment and management, absolutely key. Get the best out of the people and probably focus. You know, we, we did have a lot of channel partners and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't bother doing that up front this time. I'd focus on the 2 3 4% that will, that will really deliver the profitability. So on the subject of management, because this is really important, I was listening to an interview with Brian Sullivan and Jonathan Farrington in July 2018, uh, 2019, and Jonathan said that fewer than 6% of managers are qualified to be in a management role in sales. How can we really identify and nurture talent into management early enough and give them enough of a runway so that when they take on the role of manager, they hit the ground running rather than do what was done to them and repeat those awful historical mistakes? I'm a great believer in allowing people to shine. There are lots of things that you can do to give people the tools. There's plenty of training and, and development and, and nurturing that you can do for, for people. But I think I've always taken the, the approach that I shouldn't single out individuals for that treatment. Treat the whole team in the same way. And I allow the people who are going to be great managers to shine through. And I actually find that the ones that are really good at it tend to get there by themselves if you create the environment in which they're allowed to be free, to, to make all the mistakes, to learn, put the plan in as soon as you hire a channel manager for them to become a manager later on down, you know, further down the line, assume that they're going to until they get to a point when they're not. I had a really interesting situation. A friend of mine recounted a story where his friend was the top salesperson in a car dealership and the dealer principal fired him because he was earning more than him. And you cannot have let ego get in the way. Hire people who are better than yourself and give them the opportunity in order to absolutely rise to the top. 
to be their best. Because as a manager, you only have, I've broadened it to four functions. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the resources and tools they need to do their job mm. excellently mm. every day and protect them from your idiot bosses. Now, CEOs only have one objective, growth. That's it. If you're not feeding that fuel as a CEO, then chances are you're focused on the wrong thing. And this crap about shareholder value, that is a massive distraction. I mean, we're seeing some of the uh, big companies in the States blathering on about how they're moving away from shareholder value as their primary driver. Let's see whether they're willing to do that when they have two bad quarters and their job's on the line. But I think that emphasis on sustainable, effective growth is really important. And have a clear vision. Make sure that everybody knows where they're headed, why they're doing it, that they buy into what your purpose is. Mm. And they're all committed to serving their customers. And this brings me to the final point that I want to talk about, which is about service. Describe to me how you develop a culture that is genuinely founded on the values of service. That's a really interesting one because I think service is misunderstood greatly by the majority of people who are in business everywhere in the world. So people mistake service um, on an individual level and an organizational level for servitude, and, and it just isn't. You know? Absolutely. Um, very much the opposite. But the idea of being um, in service to somebody else for many people, uh, you know, it, it dents egos. People get in their own way and they don't want to do it. And in channel, in channel management, as a channel chief, as a manager, as a company owner, understanding that your function is there to serve everybody around you is probably one of the most important things that you can do. And if you don't understand that, you need to piss off. In terms of creating a culture in which service is the number one priority, I think it's really important that when you're developing teams, when you're building teams, they're, they're brought on understanding what, what your values are as an organization and what your, to some degree, what your, what your strategies are and how you're going to achieve the goals and why you want to achieve them. I think visibility is really important. There are so many salespeople who are brought in um, with the sole objective of meeting a target, uh, a financial target. And you know what financial targets, in terms of salespeople and motivation, are largely bullshit. Mm -hmm. They don't work. Absolutely. They don't work. We need to be working as a team to a common goal. And this again, this goes for, for you, you staff and for your channel partners. You're working towards a common objective. Understanding the underlying motivations of your staff, just as you do with your channel partners and their salespeople, it's really important. Why are they there? How can I help them to buy into what we want to achieve? And how is what we want to achieve going to help them to move along their journey? And quite often with channel managers and salespeople, for example, I actually... You know, I'd love to retain the very best for, for forever because they're going to deliver great profitability for my businesses. But actually, if I can bring them on and, and I can help them to develop in, into the, to the person that they want to be, and then they leave, I'm, I'm quite satisfied. And I worked in recruitment for many years, and I used to love working in Scandinavia because I'd phone up a manager at Ericsson, and I would say, Olaf, I've got a great job. Intel and describe the role to them. And they would say, you know, you need to talk to Bergen or uh, to John or whoever. And he would be perfect for that role. And they would refer people on their team because it was the right thing to do. And I love what you've just said there. So wrapping all of this up, I understand what we've discussed correctly. The key is to have your partners front and center in everything that you do. 
because happy partners mean happy customers mean hyper profits. Make sure that you really narrow your focus on those who can and will deliver, who share common purpose, who have your values and who you can work with closely, intimately, so that you understand each other completely. You trust each other. You don't have to like each other initially, I think, but you do absolutely have, have to trust that they are excellent at what they do. They are fully committed to the objectives that you've mm-hmm. mapped out. And make sure that you are getting the best out of your partners by serving them consistently. The partners come first, the customers come second, and you come a very poor third. Very poor third, indeed. Okay. And critically, keep attacking yourself. Don't ever get complacent. Look at yourself. Look at what's not working. That five-year plan, three, six months down the road, revisit it. Absolutely. And come back to it and say, okay, well, this is working. This isn't. We need to change that. And don't be afraid to change. Don't be rigid. Don't be brittle. Make sure you're flexible enough so that you can adapt to the current environment. Would that be a fair summary? I think that's a fair summary. And I think it all starts... It does all start with the mirror. In order to be able to do all of that, you need to really reflect on yourself and you need to get out of your way and you need to allow yourself to create an environment and a culture within your your company as it stands that will allow these things to happen. If you're ignoring your sales team and your engineering team and your finance team and you're treating them with the contempt that most people treat channel partners, that's exactly how you'll treat your channel partners. They are partners. They are partners. They're part of your business just as much as you, your PA, your secretary, your, your cleaners, your engineering teams, your finance director. You're all part of the same business. Um, and if you're a crap manager inside, you'll be a crap manager outside. So get out of your own way and start with the mirror. What a fantastic point. You have to be able to sell your own stuff if other people are going to sell it. Right. You have to be able to manage your people effectively and get the best out of them. Nick, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you yeah, so real much. great to talk really to you. fantastic. So if you've been interested in the subjects that we've been talking about, then please get in touch, comment, like, share. But more importantly, come back with questions. If you're struggling with developing your channel, you're about to embark on building a channel for the first time, or you simply need to turn around a dying or moribund or flat channel, then please get in touch. Contact me at marcus.kauchi, that's C-A-U-C-H-I, at sandler, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com, or phone me on 07-515-937-221, or please contact me on LinkedIn. I have a plethora of articles. I have two, 300 videos on YouTube, and I'm constantly producing more content. So by all means, follow me on LinkedIn. And Nick, if people want to get in touch with you, because I know you're looking for an interesting project to get your teeth stuck into (laughs) now that you're semi-retired, what would you like? I would suggest that LinkedIn is the best place to do that. If you want to get in touch, uh, look me up on LinkedIn, drop me a message. I want to add something about Marcus, if that's okay. We met, when, a year ago? Something something, uh, uh, along those lines, um, through a mutual colleague and friend. And what really sparked my interest about Marcus was his book, Making Channel Sales Work. I've read, in a Blue Peter moment, I've read this book from cover to cover. I devoured it. Um, I've also read an awful lot of other books on channel sales and international selling. I've been to all the training sessions. I've had all the trainers. And, you know, 99% of them are crap. This book 
to me reflected the reality of what it's actually like to develop and manage and run profitable, sustainable channel internationally. And it's the closest I've ever seen to the reality. So I, I think it's fantastic, Mark. Thank a you. really great job. Um, and that's why we're sitting here today. Because, you know, I think because we've got that common ground. But, um, you know, read this book if you want to get into to channel sales, to international channel, if you've got a, a dying business and you, this is the starting point. So Nick and I are firmly of the belief that sales is a force for good, particularly channel sales. We're also aware that given the state of the UK economy and the uncertainty that we want to contribute to the growth of the UK economy. So we're working collaboratively, we're looking for partners, and we're also particularly looking for investors in technology companies that are looking to scale and achieve hyper growth. So I'm talking about 150, 200% plus growth per annum year on year. And what we're looking to do is help six of them grow to $1 billion over the next eight years. So if that sounds like you, if you have that fire in your belly, that burning ambition, or you're an investor in a portfolio of technology companies, then please get in touch. We're serious as a heart attack. Clearly, I'm a candidate for one, but we're serious as a heart attack to help people achieve that kind of hyper growth. And the idea will be not only to get those six companies to a billion dollars, but to work with an entire portfolio and get out of 40, get 15 to 20 of them to a seriously good IPO and create elephants and whales and unicorns. So get in touch. And thank you for watching.